listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Lyrical, structured, clear. Hilary Purrington is a New York City-based composer of chamber, vocal, and orchestral music. Recent commissions include new works for Yale Glee Club, the Sioux City Symphony Orchestra, and the Musical Chairs Ensemble. This fall, American Composers Orchestra and guitarist Gigi will premiere Hillary's new guitar concerto. She is also a classically trained singer and performs regularly with choirs in the New York City area. In her spare time, she works as an associate director of advancement at Barnard College. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hillary, uh, I saw you a couple weeks ago in New York. Good to see you again. It had been a while. Yeah, it's been a long time since like since 2015. Like- Probably. Yeah. 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 We were both in Houston. I know. Well, let's uh, let's get into some of your music. All this has been all all, all the pieces we're going to hear uh, on the podcast are more recent pieces. And I wanted to start out with the, the most recent one you had worked on. And that one is Beyond the Daily Mist of Our Minds. Yes. For choir. What? Uh, who wrote the text? What is the text? What is this piece about? So the text is by a female astronomer named Mariah Mitchell. Um, So pretty much Jeff Dauma, the conductor of Yale Glee Club, asked me to write a piece for his choir, which was like a dream come true for me because I I really wanted to go to Yale for undergrad and I really wanted to sing with Yale Glee Club. And then that didn't happen. (laughs) I think everything worked out okay. But (laughs) that's not what happened. So he approached me and he's like, oh, want to write this piece for... Yale Glee Club, and I'm like, yes, 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 I do. Um, so trying to I, hide your trying to hide your excitement. Yes, yes, please, I want to do. Oh, sorry. Yes, yes, I will do that. I am professional. Yeah, or let me let me think about it and get back to you. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> let me see if I have time. Um, yeah. So I wanted to write a piece that had something to do with with learning and exploration and creativity, and I really wanted to set a text by a woman. And I thought, what if I could find something that's in the public domain by a female astronomer that's somewhat poetic? And then that also seemed kind of impossible because it was so specific. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I started researching um, female astronomers and I discovered Mariah Mitchell and her specialty um, was comets. That was her thing. And she has this journal And in it, she just kind of writes about her daily life and her observations and just everything. And there was this very poetic passage about about like these big discoveries that have happened and how how simple they seem to us now. And there are all of these things that we observe or that she was observing at the time. And they had no explanation for those things back then. And... And her point is that someday those things will be very simple too, and mm-hmm. several of the um, of the um, the things that she describes, like the variable stars or whatever, we know what those are now, and that's kind of beautiful too. And then there are other things now, presently, that we don't know, but in the future, when we do know them, they will seem simple. And really, things are just complicated because we don't know them, mm-hmm. and. Yeah, there was just a lot in the text that I really loved, and um, it was fun to set for choir. Now, when was when was she uh, actively working? So you um, said was this in the public domain? So that yes. would have been like her pre, diaries are what pre nineteen twenty twenty ish. Yeah, so she was active in the nineteenth century, late nineteenth century, I think. Okay. Yeah, that's a really interesting concept about like how the the stuff that seems simple now was was you know baffling back then there's um a couple of years ago i got really really into um neil degrasse tyson and the whole uh cosmos uh you know reboot and everything and started listening to his podcast and read his book and i was really fanboying on neil degrasse tyson for say well he spoke he spoke at our commencement damn oh that's right he did yeah yeah <laughs> that's right we did we did graduate at the same time from Rice. we did <laughs> um but he has this uh you know he and i'm sure it's not you know it's not his original idea or something but you know when um when we are presented with something that has no discernible answer, the common answer 
that people ascribe to it is it's either it's either magic or it's god and then you know how as time progresses those things get explained you know and we we understand like oh well you know this this is the way it is because of these things that we now understand and that that's always his his comment about religion it's like why would you want to live in a world where there's an ever shrinking god you know right and i think there i can't remember now there's someone else who um has is talking about the same thing you know that uh the difference between it's something about like the difference between science and magic is you know like is is a rage, razor edge line you know or something like something like that you know you you science can explain up to a point and then when when science fails people just assume it's oh it's magic it's really yeah. it's really <laughs> interesting so she was so she was she was kind of in on this and she was she was researching comets and and this what why what about this particular piece why did you want to set something that was kind of about learning or or about science or or something like that what what was that drive that led you to search for this text in the first place um i i think because i was writing for a group of undergraduates that was mm. part of it just to kind of like appeal to this you know curiosity that they already have and that you know and they're they're thriving in this this place that encourages curiosity and exploration and i thought it was just appropriate in that way i've never written a choral piece and as a singer you uh, who very often sings in choirs what are you looking for in choral music you know what kind of jumps out to you as as either choral techniques or the way you set certain words what i mean what are you what are the things that you think are just great that that either you do or compose or other composers do um so just singability is yeah <laughs> that is the first thing no i'm serious like i i test drive test drive <laughs> everything that i write because i want to know that it feels good on the voice i mean yeah. obviously i'm not a tenor or baritone so i can only hope that those those parts go well but i mean i think singing through it myself um is very very helpful in that sense um that also helps me with with word stress with where syllables lie mm-hmm, um yeah. i think also having training as a singer and having an understanding of ipa and how like i mean choral singers don't tend to you know analyze texts like that like you know specific vowels they do but not the same level as you know operatic singers who are who are you know who really go through that um but just having that awareness is very very helpful knowing what a vowel is going to be um that's really helpful you mean Uh, like it this is the vowel that it's going to be and that vowel will sound maybe stressed in this range or easy in this range or something like that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And knowing that um, certain vowels just won't be as clear in certain ranges. Mm -hmm. And uh, so those things are helpful. Um, And then also harmonically, just knowing what challenges are. um, Sometimes certain chords are just really hard to tune and it's really important to convey to singers where they lie in the chord, what their role is. And if they know what their role is within the chord, they'll tune better because they know what to listen for. So you have to think about that as well. Um, and that's that's something I just know from being in a choir sure. and having to like kind of hunt for my note. And I realize I'm hunting because I don't know what my role is. Right, yeah. Yeah, I suppose if you know if you if you know the chord and you know your role, you can then base that off of like the basses or the sopranos or or what you know. Especially, right. I, I guess, especially if you're an inner part, you want to be kind of listening for those outer parts to find where you are in relationship. Exactly, and I think this is also important with um, with writing for instruments as well. I think being a singer has helped me in that sense because mm. instrumentalists have to tune as well. And if they know where they lie within the context of like a chord or wherever, 
they can tune better. And so I think singing and tuning, they're things that go hand in hand. Now, would you say that, you know, you said some some chords in in choral music are just hard to tune. Was having that information, was that informing your own harmonic choices? Or were you just kind of, was that already just kind of built in that you like, I know these things are going to work and I know these things aren't going to work. So I'm going to stay away from those things. Um, I think, I think both, because when things aren't in tune, things don't snap together and the chords don't ring. And there isn't that like that acoustic, I guess, pleasure that comes from singing good choral music. You you know, you don't feel the tingles and jingles. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So, I mean, for the sake of drama, there are certain places where I really want things to lock in and um, knowing how to do that, I think is important. Awesome. Uh, so you said this commission came from the Yale Glee Club? Yes. And is that who we're, we're going to hear on the recording? Yes. All right. Well, let's listen to it now. This is Beyond the Daily Mist of Our Minds.
so that that last piece that we just heard was from that was pretty recent. That was 2018. Yeah. So that was premiered in November, I believe. Awesome. Yeah. So less than a year ago. So kind of moving a little bit further back in time, let's talk about your orchestra piece, Likely Pictures in Haphazard Sky. Yes. So what's, what is the story behind this piece? How did it come about? Sure. So um, I wrote this piece, um, let's see, it was the second year of my master's degree at Yale. And we had an opportunity to write an orchestra piece for the Yale Philharmonia, and that's offered to all second year master's students. And... Um, I wrote this piece for them. And one thing I was thinking of is the fact that the hall that it was going to be premiered in is essentially a bathtub. <laughs> and <laughs> it's a what very <laughs> gaudy, ornate bathtub. And the sound just doesn't die, basically. Okay. So it's like the most reverberant space that you can imagine to the point that, that like things are lost. Like if you write yeah. a piece with like lots of detail, you're not going to hear it. It just turns mm. into this wash of sound. So a lot of my approach was kind of taking that hall into consideration because I knew it was going to be an important recording. It was going to be yeah. important in a lot of ways. And I needed that premiere to sound really great. Yeah. And I, th I think that's, that can be a great thing just considering the space that it's going to be first heard in, um, depending on the piece, but yeah. sure. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's something that... I, I try to do. Um, if I know what the premiere space is going to be like, it's really helpful for me. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that was actually one of the things I kind of like uh, one of the things I really like about this piece is the is restraint that you put I I mean on the materials on yourself. I mean it the piece doesn't try to do everything. And I think I just figured out why because it it does a very specific thing well. You have these like really kind of it opens with these really short kind of plucked sounds and and um uh, Bode Crotale is like things that will last in a bathtub, apparently, <laughs> you know, but it, it it's, it's kind of sparse and that's really interesting. But I think that restraint, it, what it does is it, it gives the piece a really solid identity, you know, because you're not trying to do everything with this orchestra piece, you're just exploring these, these, you know, these, these, uh, sparse textures, you know, solid, melodic lines and and these kind of ethereal high either bode crotales or um string harmonics or, or stuff that can get out of the way but still it it, it you know you kind of create uh, a ceiling a cloud that can be up there but it doesn't get in the way of anything else i mean it gives the piece like i said a really solid identity and i was going to ask you is restraint something that you think about often when you're composing. Yes. And especially for orchestra. Okay. I think that is so important um, because an orchestra is just this large, complicated thing with so many moving parts. Yeah. And um, it, it's really important to control your materials and your ideas because especially when you're working with orchestra, it's not just like, oh, I have this cool melody and I have this cool harmony and I have these cool gestures. You have a whole world of color that adds this, all of this, this other identity to all these materials mm -hmm. and just this other, this other dimension. And you just, you need that restraint and control so that the piece makes sense and it kind of functions within itself. And it's not this sprawling thing that, you know, ends up lacking any kind of identity. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's there are just so many orchestra pieces where it's like, oh, you know what? I, I I think well, I think this is like half of the reason why there are so many orchestra pieces that are kind of like you said, kind of like sprawling or everything but the kitchen sink type pieces, and it's because composers don't have a lot of chances to write for orchestra. Also true. Yeah. So they, it's like, oh, well, this is my shot. I better take it to try all these things I've always wanted to do or something. And it's, it often like, 
you know, some, some people can do it very well and other people just can't. So, you know, that it, it, it's kind of this thing, well, you know, oh, well, we, we gave this person a shot and it really didn't work out. So, you know, let's go back to Beethoven. Like if, if more, if more composers had the opportunity to write consistently for orchestra, I think you would see a lot of, a lot of really good orchestra pieces coming out. Yeah. So I wrote a piece like that. I mean, not like very sprawling and not, it wasn't all over the place, yeah. but it kind of was. And I, it didn't really work. And part of it was, it was the fact that it was on an orchestra reading that started at 9am. And if you ask violinists to play fast scales at 9am, even though that's what they do all day, they're not going to, (laughs) (laughs) they just won't do it. Right. And (laughs) I get it. It's 9am. But, um, I had this orchestra reading. It was, uh, my first year at Juilliard and it just did not go well. And my second year, I had a chance to write another orchestra piece, which they probably shouldn't have given me that chance, but somehow like I snuck in and took it and there was nothing they could do about it. And <laughs> I should not, no, it was, just it was take great. It, Hillary. I should not have had two orchestra readings, but somehow like I just like weaseled my way into that. Yeah. And anyway, so I wrote this second piece and after like the first one just like didn't work and I didn't want to like revise it. I didn't want to do anything with it. Yeah. Um, I decided Just move on because I, yeah, because I was applying for, um, I was applying for doctoral programs and other things. And I wanted to have, like, I wanted to leave Juilliard with a really solid orchestra piece. And I was studying with Stephen Stuckey at the time. And I basically said like, I just want to write a piece that just reads well and sounds good. And that's it. And he's like, (laughs) (laughs) so (laughs) I had started this piece over the summer and I showed it to him and like, we refined it. But that's where the restraint came in because I wanted to write a piece that would just read well. That was my initial goal with it. And that's how I learned to approach orchestra writing with that sense of restraint. And the piece worked really well. It's a piece I'm still proud of. Um, It was actually, it was performed a few months ago. Like it's, it's still, I think it's a strong piece. And then I kind of approached likely pictures with, with that knowledge that, oh, sometimes approaching orchestra writing with a lighter hand is the more effective approach. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I was I was going to ask you, you know, where did some of your orchestration inspiration come from? I mean, there are there are sounds in this piece that I really appreciate, like your your use of the trumpets as a really exposed instrument, you know? So did you have like... You know, that obviously this isn't your first orchestral piece. Did in doing one's previous or in listening to other composers' orchestral pieces, were there kind of sounds that out there that you were just like, you know what? I think that's gonna work. Let's try it here. Ooh, I'm not sure, actually. Hmm. Um I don't know. I think I think it definitely was some experimentation on my okay. part. I wasn't entirely sure how these things were going to sound. Hmm. Um, and I think I had other ideas initially too, because like the vibraphone melody at the beginning, initially I wanted that to be on electric guitar, but that wasn't available to me. So I put it on vibraphone. I think you made the right choice, but (laughs) it would have just been a completely different sound and a completely different piece. But, um, yeah, it was kind of, because the way that concert works at Yale is they give you like a very specific setup. Mm-hmm. You're like you can only use these instruments. You can only do these things. You, you only have this percussion available to you. And here's how they're going to be set up. So you can only use this specific percussion setup too. Honestly, I think that's great. You know, uh, yeah, because it's like for so many composers, percussion is often the like the mystery. They they don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to write for it, and they don't understand that like they you know I can't play the bass drum on this side of the stage and then in the next measure play the vibraphone on that side of the stage you know so giving you know i i think that honestly i think that's really smart for for this kind of thing where it's like it's you know it's it's a very controlled setting but it's also a good learning experience for people's like oh that's where the bass drum is that's where the vibraphone is shit i can't write them back to back you know (laughs) Although in this specific circumstance, it has raised questions with like other orchestras because the percussionist is like, 
why is player two playing that? I can play that. I'm like, I know, but that, <laughs> that yeah. the original, the original orchestra had guidelines. Like, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but it, it, they do like ask questions like why that guy's not doing anything. Why can't, why can't he play it? I'm like, right. <laughs> Cause he didn't have the instruments. It's like, okay, whatever. Um, what does the title mean? Um, so it's from a poem by William Meredith that discusses constellations, again, space-themed, um, <laughs> by, <laughs> by coincidence. And he discusses how we, as humans, we, we seek patterns in chaos. And that's, that's something that we're all built to do, is look for patterns and and see things and those patterns bring us comfort so we look at the sky and we see a mess of stars and we form pictures out of them Mm -hmm. and i i just i loved his way of expressing that and kind of um coming up with this like universal feeling and this um this universal ability that we we all have and that kind of that kind of binds us you know all civilizations all people have looked up to the sky and know formed patterns and pictures we have that in common and um and I I came up with the title afterwards but kind of fit what kind of happens in the piece because at the beginning you have these very these very sparse pointillistic textures that kind of coalesce into something something bigger yes and also as as a listener you know you might be either kind of tying some of those points together either based on their proximity in time or based on their proximity in register or timbre and forming little melodic ideas for your, for yourself. I mean, you said you came up with the title afterwards, but that, (laughs) that that really works to, to, it really does. Yeah. (laughs) This, the, uh, the, especially the opening and the closing. And I think you do it in the middle too of the piece, but you it's it's taken down into the like the bass and percussion, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. How did you approach I mean, we talked about um we kind of talked about pitch and harmony in the last one as a as a product of uh the ensemble that you were working with. Um, how did you approach harmony in this piece? I mean, one of your ad- to use one of your adjectives, it seems like th- this piece is very structured, or, or it takes a very structured approach. But that could be deceptive. I don't know. <laughs> um, for me, harmony is mostly intuitive. Mm-hmm. It's not um, if it results in you know structural implications that's usually a coincidence i'm not like structuring things based on harmony so much i structure mostly based on drama and range and that's interesting okay yeah um and i mean harmony plays into that but that's not something i map out beforehand so you really kind of are you are you kind of dealing more in time then i mean if you're talking about drama uh, I, th- I, I think the drama is a function of how long you are put in some kind of musical state of being. Right. Uh, that's something that I, I think about. I, I usually map out my pieces. I kind of draw like a timeline and I decide like how long major sections are going to last and what's going to happen during those sections. And... And then I kind of like work in from there. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, a lot of it has to do with, with range and color. That's largely what defines those, those sections, you mm-hmm. know, along with, you know, length of time, but. Sure. Cool. Well, uh, who are we going to hear on this recording? Uh, so this is the premiere, uh, the Yale Philharmonia. Awesome. Let's listen to it now. This is Likely Pictures in Haphazard Sky. Thank you. 
let's talk about this last piece, the oldest piece we're going to listen to. This was in 2015. Yes. Um, a sound soul in a sound body for amplified harpsichord and percussion quartet. Yes. Where <laughs> in the world did that come from? <laughs> um, so one of my good friends, Robert Flights, he is a pianist and keyboardist. And um, during his master's degree at Juilliard, he decided that he wanted to put on a recital that did not feature the piano. So it was only like auxiliary keyboard instruments. <laughs> and it was a fantastic recital. <laughs> and he commissioned a bunch of his composer friends like he likes to do. Um, I'd also written a piano piece for him the year prior. And um, he wanted um, a harpsichord piece. And the harpsichord, to me, it, it, it sounds like a toy in many right, ways. Yeah. <laughs> and I had had this idea for a while of writing a piece for percussion and harpsichord. And I love the idea. Wait, what? <laughs> you had that idea, like, just out in the wild, not, not related to this person at all? Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> Well, like, that, that's that's a dream come true then. I'm like, like, wouldn't this be, like, one of those things, like, you know, wouldn't this be funny? Like, wouldn't this yeah. be, like, a cool thing to do? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then he wanted a piece for harpsichord. I'm like, well, I got an idea. And, um, yeah, so I wrote this piece. I am just the thing. <laughs> <laughs> and um i think at the time it was it was probably like one of the longest pieces i've ever written yeah um and it it was it was a lot of fun um i had like the challenges with percussion that we discussed earlier where you Mm -hmm. have to figure out where everyone is going to live and and the kind of like the drama of interaction um between the players on the stage um and then um yeah so it's you can hear from the structure that there's kind of like a refrain that keeps returning. And Mm -hmm. that's something I definitely wanted to do. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun to write and it was kind of a a sillier piece for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think so few listeners have had, uh, if they are composers have had a chance to compose for harpsichord. So while you were writing this piece, like what did, what did you learn? What are the quirks of the instrument? If any, um, other than you can't hear it without amplification. <laughs> yeah, other than the fact that you cannot hear it at all. <laughs> I, I thought it was really funny that you took an instrument that is almost, you know, like so, so quiet in its natural state and paired it with the other instrument that is the loudest instrument. Like, you know, like you can, you can take one tam-tam and deafen an entire orchestra. Right. Like, so I, I thought it was funny that you took like, really really quiet and then really fucking loud instruments and put them together (laughs) it it kind of worked yeah um well okay so no no two harpsichords are the same you can find similar ones but that's that's nice (laughs) yeah so there's that so actually for the premiere performance robert was using a, a harpsichord that had all of like these other like registral effects you could you know play in octaves or it had like even a lute setting where it would pluck instead (laughs) (laughs) so we played with some of those sounds um the recording that we have today that's actually not the premiere um this um this the, the sound quality of this recording is a lot better um but yeah, in the original premiere, we had all of like these things that we could play with. So I met with Robert beforehand and we decided like, you know, when he was going to add like special octaves and uh-huh. play around like that. That um, almost this- sounds like it's it's almost similar to like the organ. Yes. You know? Yes. They're very, very similar. And okay. in playing technique too, um, in the sense that you, you can't sustain anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, with the organ you can, but that means that you have to like keep your fingers down and same right. with. Right. Yeah harpsichord i mean it it does decay like a piano that's right though but yeah yeah you don't have a pedal you you literally oh my god i i totally forgot about that with harpsichord that you had to keep everything down otherwise it's just going to stop the sound right exactly so that's um yeah so it's just like a different technique 
Um, and then this is definitely not, <laughs> this is not unique to all harpsichords, but at Juilliard, the harpsichords have their own schedule. So, <laughs> so when you're, when you're finding rehearsal time, yes, you have to make sure that all five players are available, but guess what? You have to make sure the harpsichord is available as well. Oh my God. So that was, that was a fun is discovery. Is it going out on a date or something? Like what is it doing that it's not available? Well, there's an entire historical performance department at Juilliard. Oh. And then oh, you have yeah, to make sure it's it's tuned correctly, too. So you have to let them know beforehand. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's, <laughs> Juilliard is a funny place. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. So <laughs> um, th- this is the oldest piece we're listening to. And I also thought that um, in terms of pitch, it, it had the most uh, – it had the, the largest spectrum – in terms of the material, the pitch materials that you're working with in this piece, there are, you know, you simultaneously, simultaneously have structures that remind us of like diatonic scalar passages and then also like clusters and very strident chords as well. I mean, yeah, it, it just has a, a wide harmonic spectrum. I mean, is, is that fair to say? Yes. Okay. So, I mean, it is the oldest piece we're going to listen to. Does that, has, have you kind of taken, a pitch evolution over time or is this piece maybe farther out than what you're normally doing like how how does this piece fit within the rest of your uh within the rest of your work so for this piece um like I said it was one of the longest pieces I had written up until then it's still like one of my longer pieces and I had all of like these colors to to work with because I have all of these you know percussion instruments and then the harpsichord and and I had to kind of think of a way of keeping the piece cohesive like we were talking about before so there you know isn't too much going on and it completely falls apart and it's just like a sprawling mess that's Mm -hmm. not what I want and the way I thought of it was I tried to think of the piece as like a person or a character and when you have like a character like in a play or a real life person, there are things that are in character and there are things that are out of character. Yeah. And trying to like create this like musical persona, I guess, and making things fit within that. Cause I think the piece as a whole is cohesive, but there's mm-hmm. like a lot there, but it's all related. Yeah. And I think it's all like within character, I guess. Right. You want, you like if you're if you're writing for for a play or or a character or whatever you want them to be you know you want them to have different sides to their character obviously you don't want to write a one-dimensional character but everything is filtered through the lens of that character so you know they can be happy they can be mad they can be set you know they obviously those are really simple emotions but um <laughs> just <laughs> like, those two <laughs> just those two you can be happy and you can be mad nothing else <laughs> but um but you want you want that you want that emotion to be true th- through however that particular character would react so in this in this musical setting you were thinking about that how like how can i express these different qualities about this ensemble but yet allow it to remain in character to the ensemble exactly okay was was this the first time you wrote for percussion outside of orchestra um uh no but it was like the first time that it was like in an ensemble like this Mm -hmm. and not not soloistic but still like a major feature right what were the i i, I think I, I i watched some of the the video that you can find on uh hillary's website of the premiere yes. and um i saw th- there were quite a few mallet uh percussion instruments but also some some like toys and i think you had a kick drum and also a concert bass drum and fiber slap vi- yeah that was it <laughs> can't go wrong with a vibra slap <laughs> <laughs> uh what is the what does the title mean a sound soul in a sound body so um i actually found this title because i went to 
I went to this exhibit at the Brooklyn Museum a few years ago, and it was an exhibit just on sneakers, just like the evolution of sneakers. It was a great exhibit. And they had um, some like original ASICs there. And apparently ASICs, um, that stands for the Latin phrase that means a sound soul and a sound body. And I was writing this piece at the time and I was just like, oh, this describes the piece because like I was saying, I was trying to think of it as like, as like a, a person, as like this functioning thing. And it, it's kind of, and like the phrase, it's about like, you know, taking care of yourself and that sort of thing. And it, it kind of made sense and, mm-hmm. and it just fit. It's, it's a very, stuck. it's a very poetic shoe company. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who are we going to hear on the recording on, on this recording? Um, so this is my friend, Ben Wallace. He is also a composer, a really great composer too. And, um, and he, He's also just like a wildly talented multi-instrumentalist. He's a percussionist. He plays piano and harpsichord, apparently. So he jumped in to play this, and then four percussionists from the Yale School of Music. Awesome. So let's listen to it now. This is A Sound Soul and a Sound Body.
So uh, we've come to the the last question, the question that I always ask all the guests that are on the podcast. Um, how did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life? Um, I'm still I'm still coming to it. No, um. you're still coming to it. You still haven't fully committed. <laughs> Not fully. No. Um, I think I think it was in high school. Um, I had a choral teacher who. Um, she noticed that I had a talent for writing music. I took her music theory class and part of the class, there was, there was a component that required us to analyze and um, kind of mimic, write our own pieces that mimicked the pieces we were analyzing. And she noticed that my pieces were stronger than everyone else's and kind of... <laughs> and, uh, Not to brag or anything. Yeah. No big deal. <laughs> uh, but, I mean... Yeah, no, I yeah. <laughs> she um she asked me to to arrange a piece for choir, so I arranged um, Imogen Heap's Hide and Seek nice. for women's choir. Yes, and then she said, "Hey, you should um you should just try writing a piece." So I wrote a piece for women's choir, and um it came out well. And then I wrote another piece, and then I went to Interlochen Arts Camp one summer and that summer kind of showed me that I could I could do music all the time I could be around musicians all the time and I could thrive in that kind of environment because I think a lot of people go to music school and they don't they don't know if they can just do music 100% of the time right yeah and I kind of had this this time this six week period to just kind of try it out and of course when you're in high school six weeks is like it's like six months. So. Right. An eternity. <laughs> so I kind of had that opportunity to kind of live in that place for a while. And I realized, yes, I can do this. I can thrive here. I can be productive. I can be creative. I can, I can do this. And so that's really what convinced me. And I applied, applied to school for composition and went to Rice. That's where I met you. And that's where you became our little sister. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I still can't remember why we called you Samwise. I really, really can't. Obviously, it ha- it, it's the Lord of the Rings reference, but I don't remember why. Well, let me tell you. Okay, you remember? That's good. <laughs> yes. It came from Hillshire Farms. Oh. <laughs> which turned into the Shire, which turned into Frodo, which became Samwise. Samwise. <laughs> we called you Frodo for a while? <laughs> I think it was brief. I th- I think it was like almost just skipped over. The jump to Sam Wise was very quick. <laughs> yeah, because I, I think I know like at some point Steve had me in, in his phone as both Hillshire and Sam Wise. Right. <laughs> as different contexts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that's good. So that's how that happened. Oh. So before we go, can you tell everyone where they can find more of your music? And where they could reach out to you online if they wanted to? Yes. Yeah, so my website is hillarypurrington.com and I'm reachable there as well. Oh, we should we should mention that it's Hillary with one L. Yes, yes, that is that is true. Hillary with one L, Purrington with two R's. Yes. I don't know <laughs> how else you would spell Purrington. But... It's like a cat. Yeah. Her. Cool. Thanks so much for doing this, Hillary. Thanks for having me. This is fun. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.